In conclusion, this book, while excellent in its analysis overall, welcomes students to bring together the theories and methods of two different fields of study, social history, detailed enough so that more seasoned researchers will find. I'm Robert Castanello. I'm the vice president of research and publications at HNet, and this is the Art of the Review podcast. I'm Elena Kalinsky, managing editor of HNet Reviews. And this is a podcast where we examine reviewing and criticism as an academic form. This podcast is brought to you by HNET and the University of Central Florida's Center for Humanities and Digital Research. Welcome to the Art of the Review podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about reviewing as criticism. So in a lot of our other episodes, we've been discussing various aspects of academic book reviewing but we wanted to consider other kinds of reviews, such as reviewing artworks, reviewing music. For me, as an art historian, this brings up the famous distinction between art criticism and art history. The function of critics as people who review or write criticism about artworks at the time of their production or soon after their production, versus art historians who look back at artworks in context, in their historical context. So this is kind of different functions and you apply maybe different criteria to those two reviewing functions. So Robert, you were thinking about reviewing music. That's right. Um, We had talked about doing an episode on music reviewing or music criticism. And I happen to be talking to someone here. I was having coffee with a colleague named Barry Maurer, who's in the English department at the University of Central Florida. And he and I were just sort of chatting about this podcast. And I said, oh, I really want to get someone to talk about reviewing music or music criticism. And he says, oh, that's really funny because he told me he used to be uh, a music reporter and he used to do – uh, record reviews for uh, the Washington Times in um, Washington, D.C. back in, I think, the early to mid-90s. And so he and I just, you know, started kind of talking, and we both shared an interesting, you know, I don't want to say love, but maybe appreciation of uh, Bob Dylan and his music. And I had brought up uh, specifically, you know, how, because I would just read about Bob Dylan's 1970 album, Self-Portrait. It's been you know, maligned over the years. And it's sort of coming into a new appreciation, I guess might be a good way to put it. And so, so Barry was familiar with this argument about self-portrait. He was familiar with the criticism about it. And so I asked, you know, I asked him, I said, well, would you be interested in talking you know, to me about self-portrait as a you know, has an act of reviewing and criticism, and he's, he seemed uh, pretty game for it. So I, you know, went down and to his office, and uh, we had a, a conversation about Bob Dylan and and where these critics are coming from who are um, providing a new appreciation for a work that was, in its time, you know, heavily criticized. Mm-hmm. And so did anything come out in the interview that you thought was particularly notable for us to think about in terms of reviewing? Well, actually, it did. There was something, I I guess, that I didn't really understand, because I I guess I should profess I'm not a fan of self-portrait myself. But um, the thing I took away from it was there's sort of these, these two roles one could play as a critic. You know, you could review the piece 
And so that would be just the album in and of itself, self-portrait, you know, has a discrete thing. Or you could review it in the context of Bob Dylan's work before and after. And then, you know, depending on which you choose to take, which, which aspect you choose to take, you come away with a very different review of that one album. And that's what I thought was sort of really interesting yeah. to the conversation that we had. Yeah, great. Well, let's listen to this interview about reviewing as criticism with Barry Maurer. Well, thank you for joining me today. Could you introduce yourself to our audience? Mm -hmm. This is Barry Maurer, and I am a uh, English professor at UCF, also a musician, um, and uh, been a music reviewer, and also sometimes write uh, scholarly journals about music. And so we want to talk today about um, the idea of the, of the music review, and you got your start when you were younger, um, being mm -hmm. a reviewer for, a, I guess, a popular newspaper. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, a popular um, Mooney newspaper called the Washington Times. Uh, the Washington Times, uh, by the way, the editorial content was kind of controlled by, by uh, Reverend Moon, but they had a different magazine that went in there once a week that was not controlled by the Moonies, and that's what I wrote for. So um, anyway... Uh, we did have an editor, and I, pretty much I had to write like a column every week for a while, and um, I think I got paid like 70 bucks a column, which turned out to be horrible uh, because it took way more than seven hours or ten hours to write a column, so it was, you know, it was making very little money, but I kind of did it for the fun and the swag, you know, you'd, you'd call up the record label or management and they'd send you the CDs and stuff like that. So so you would review, I mean, more than just the um, the album, you would review maybe the artist or the artist's career and things like this? Yeah, because the, the particular column was about live music coming to D.C. So, um, you know, we'd state the, the time and the place uh, where the band or the musician was going to play and then I'd talk about what they had done either in their careers or recently in their recordings. So, I mean, have you, since you left that position, have you um, explored, uh, you know, writing about or uh, reviewing music? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do publish academic stuff and in which I write about music. You know, I've got a recent piece here that just came out. It's in a book called Sampling Media. And uh, it's a piece called Rigorous Infidelity, Whole Text Sampling in the Curatorial Work of Henri Langlois, Dewey Phillips, and Jean-Francois Lyotard. So uh, basically what I'm saying here is that certain people that we don't think of as curators are actually curators. And Dewey Phillips was an early Memphis DJ in the 19, late 40s and 50s who... I was the first one to play Elvis Presley on the radio. That's what he's most famous for. But um, what I'm writing about here was his function as a critic as well as a DJ. So it's kind of a metacritical piece. But basically what I'm saying is he was able to completely turn on its head what people thought good music was. You know, he, he would play novelty records, folk records, and very little of the stuff he played was polished. It was all, almost all played by amateur musicians. And what he was saying, essentially, is this stuff has more life in it than all the slick stuff coming out of the main record labels. And 
it became the DNA of rock and roll, but it didn't have that name yet. And musicians hearing his show were able to pick out what's the through line in the stuff he's playing, right? You know, I think good critics are, they have a close relationship to the curator. You know, they're, they're basically picking out, like, what's good, what you should listen to, right? A big part of that is the critical revaluation, which is to say, well, stuff people thought was crap is actually not crap, it's good. And stuff people thought was good is actually crap. And so every paradigm shift in music is accompanied by a revaluation like that. So that's one piece I published. I recently published another one on Glenn Gould, the classical pianist, and how he changed listening. So it was a piece called Glenn Gould and the New Listener. And uh, essentially what he was trying to do was create a a new relationship between the the listener and the music, uh, and, and in particular marking a kind of shift from live music to recorded and to establish that the recorded music is the primary document and and not a, a souvenir or a secondary document that the you know the, the assumption was live is better and he reversed that and there are tremendous consequences from that reversal so you know it's again it's not so much a review of particular recordings of his but rather a review of what it means to think about music differently in relationship to what he did his overall Mm -hmm. career. So So if we could return to your idea about um, uh, works that were, I guess, panned at their birth and then have have had appreciation later on. I know you and I talked about uh, Bob Dylan's self-portrait. Right. Yeah, so self-portrait is um, one of the most notorious albums, I guess, in the rock uh, pantheon, if it's in there. But, you know, Dylan had essentially recorded a string of albums. Um, now, his first album is not that notable other than introducing people to him because it's almost all covers of other mm-hmm. songs. But um, from his second album up until Self-Portrait, you know, every album he released was greeted as a work of genius, right? I mean, there's just like pretty much unanimous critical praise from anyone who cared about him at all for all of his, his records. He released Self-Portrait... It was originally released 1970, and uh, Chris Gow, I think it was Chris Gow, released a column in the Rolling Stone about it, or a review, and it said, what is this shit? That was the first line. And uh, No, it's, I'm sorry, it's Gra- Grail Marcus. Let me correct myself. Um, Rolling Stone, Grail Marcus began his critique, what is this shit? And it's been controversial ever since. I mean, almost everybody hated it. And I personally think it's an awful record. Um, Dylan defended it and said it's a great album. And now what's happened is a lot of critics are reevaluating it and saying, you know, it's not bad at all. It's actually a, a very good album and worth study. I think they're wrong. But what's interesting is the attempt. And the attempt itself is it fits a pattern that's very common among critics, which is to say that you have to view a work in terms of the auteur theory. In other words, if this was not Bob Dylan, if this was a record by someone else, and yet every note on there was identical, no one would give this record the time of day. The only reason that it's worth listening to or reviewing at all is because Bob Dylan's name is on it, and he recorded other music that's, you know, without doubt great. You know, and the auteur theory goes back to the, the, the French New Wave, the notion that artists are within a corporate structure. And if they release something that seems to us like crap, 
it's really not because they're bucking the system, right? They're resisting and rebelling against the corporate strictures on what counts as good. And that makes it even more good, right, in some ways. So an artist's failures, quote-unquote, I'm making air quotes, um, are actually triumphs because they're resisting recuperation or whatever, you know, bad word we come up with for whatever the corporation is trying to do to them. There's no indication that, that Dylan had any desire to, you know, stick his finger in the eye of a corporation or anything like that. I mean, there's no indication of any of that. Um, he does claim off and on that uh, he wanted to distance himself from his audience that had become too fanatical and was treating him like he was a prophet. And so he wanted to confound them or, you know, kind of throw them off in a way. And this is, a, I guess, a common trope of, of Dylan, right? This idea that he confronts his own mythology. Yeah. So I'm going to throw it off and, and um, you know, you, you think I'm this and I'm going to prove I'm not um, I'm something else. And But, you know, you have to take all these arguments and really ask, like, well, does that really stand up? Because if you're trying to throw off your audience and say I'm really something else, you know, there are lots of other things you could be. Like he could he could release good music that was quite different from the other music he could release and he had released and proof that he was a very different kind of artist. But to cover, like he does here, he covers Early Morning Rain, which is a Gordon Lightfoot song. And Gordon Lightfoot is clearly a Dylan imitator, right? So he's imitating an imitator. He does a cover of The Boxer, which is a Simon and Garfunkel song. And again, they, they came out of the folk scene and... Yeah, I guess originally they had been like a surf band or something like but but then became a folk band, clearly capitalizing on his popularization of folk. So again, he's imitating an imitator and not doing it well either. I mean, if you do a cover, you want your cover to be better than the original, right? Otherwise, or, or at least significantly different, but still interesting. But he's doing really poor covers of these songs. And, uh, even his own song, Like a Rolling Stone, he re-records it, his most famous song, but he makes it sound like a bad cover by someone uninteresting and, and you know, like someone who doesn't have a clue. <laughs> um, like he's imitating himself, and yet he seems to be unaware how bad it is. I mean, that's kind of... So, so now I'm going to, like, reverse myself and say, I think it's an amazing album to listen to. It's still totally horrible, but it's horrible in a way that makes you drop your jaw and listen in, in a kind of stunned sense of awe at the sheer awfulness of it, which is more than you can say for some of his other albums that are just bad but boring. This one's bad but not boring. It's, it's bad in kind of fascinating ways. Well, great. I want to thank you for joining me today. Sure. We'll post related links to this episode on the show notes blog at the H Podcast Network, and you can also go there to read more and share your thoughts on this episode.